Hi, everyone. It's Thursday, November 29th, 2007. Um, welcome to our Neurobiology podcast series. Our guest today is Fabrizio Gabbiani. He's an associate professor of neuroscience at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, on our panel today, we have, uh, as, usual, as usual, Charles Wilson. That's me. I'm here again. Um, Fidel Santagria. Hi there. How are you? Carlos Palladini. Yes, I'm back again. For the first time, Kelly Suter. Hi. And Rama Retna. Hello there. I'm back again, too. And I'm your moderator. My name is Salma Karashi. For more content on our guests and each of our panelists, please visit our website at snrp.utsa.edu. That's S-N-R-P, SNRP. So, um, Fabrizio, I just want to start with a general um, question about your, your interest. So your, your interest in neurons as information processor spans multiple levels of analysis from theory to channels to cell to network. Could you tell us just a little bit uh, about your early research interests and how they evolved during the course of your training? So <clears throat> my original training was actually as a theoretical physicist. And uh, so I, I did a PhD in, in mathematical physics after uh, finishing my, my studies. And I actually got interested in neuroscience after my PhD, essentially because at that time there was not a lot of uh, experimental work that was uh, going to be relevant to high energy physics. That has now changed uh, pretty dramatically, or will change pretty dramatically in the next coming years. But uh, for the, it was clear already at that time there was not going to be a, uh, there was going to be a ten-year period or something like this without data. So that's when I decided then to switch to to neuroscience. That was a good time for neuroscience and a good thing for neuroscientists, and we picked up a lot of well-trained physicists during that time. Are you saying that? that's over and we're not going to get the brain drain from physics anymore? Well, I don't know if it's really over or not, but certainly the, the, the physics time is coming back to a very exciting state because there's lots of new machines that are coming online and <clears throat> those machines will be able to test theories that have been around for, for a very long time, I mean, almost 20 years, that were kind of out, out of the reach of, uh, of the experimentalists. So there's likely to be... I mean, at least it's the hope of the physics community. There's likely to be a very dynamic period that is coming up, and that could definitely attract a lot of people in physics. The, the physics uh, number of students has been declining for a while, but now I think it's coming back up. So, so we have two other people, I, I think, who sort of have the same same yeah, experience. But I wanted, I was wanting to talk to you about this also. The Sloan Center for the, the Sloan Fellowship in Theoretical Neuroscience was something that really was a catalyst in bringing a lot of people from the analytical, the hard sciences, into neuroscience. Because these scholarships... neuroscience is not a hard science. No, I'm sorry. I, don't... <laughs> I took no, offense I mean, at that. I mean, they wanted to specifically targeted <laughs> people from math and physics. And, and, they, and in fact, they discarded, they didn't give these scholarships to biologists. They gave it only to people who had absolutely no neuroscience background whatsoever with the explicit aim of bringing them in. And I'm wondering if... I think that funding is dried up, right? It's no longer there. I think the Sloan Foundation is is not uh, giving that much of a funding, but I think it has been taken over by the Schwartz Foundation, mm -hmm. as far as I understand. So my understanding is that there's still um, uh, fellowships that are given, except that they are given under the Sloan Schwartz name instead of just the Sloan name. But in terms of how physicists are moving into biology, I think uh, I think it's an irreversible uh, tide. Um, because in physics now, there's a lot of biophysics, and there's a lot more biophysics departments. Um, for example, where my wife did her postdoc, 
uh, they were just looking at Drosophila development. But they were looking at the forces of the tissues. And this postdoc um, went into getting a position in a physics department doing exactly that and with transgenic uh, flies. So I think there's a lot more, I mean, there, it, there's more interest in doing now neurobiology or neuroscience in physics departments. So maybe they will hire biologists in the future. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, yeah. Especially with a lot of new students coming into physics, if we could somehow turn the physics departments and, and colonize them, mm -hmm. to the, we would capture all those great uh, students. To the bright side of the board. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're staying in neuroscience, though, right? Um, I, up to now, I'm staying in your side, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I could feel at ease also in the physics department. Uh, from the teaching point of view, it, it, it would be just natural for me because that's all the courses that I've ever taken. I've never really taken a neuroscience course in a formal way, in spite of the fact that I'm teaching neuroscience now. So I want to talk a little bit about your, your research. Um, so you, you study collision-sensitive neurons in locus visual system as a model to explore some classical issues in synaptic integration, dendritic processing, and sensory motor input-output. Um, so I just wanted to give a little bit of an overview and, and jump in and correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, um, and uh, we can go from there. So. You lay out the um, the locus visual system, or this is the circuit system that you study. Um, it basically consists of the receptor sheet, the retina itself. Um, the eye samples 360 degrees of visual space, and this inputs retina topically onto this LGMD neuron. Um, I'm not sure what the acronym is, but lobular lobular giant movement detector. Right. The LGMD then synapses onto the DCMD, which is an upper level motor neuron that relays spikes in a one-to-one -one manner to thoracic motor center. So you've shown that the time course of the firing rate of the LGMD neuron um, in response to looming objects is best described by a nonlinear combination of two retinal inputs that impinge on its dendritic field. Um, one is the excitatory, uh, it's excitatory input that's sensitive to motion, and the other is inhibitory and sensitive to size. So you've also shown that the firing rate of the LGMD neuron peaks when a looming object approaches an angular threshold size on the retina, and that this variable ultimately triggers escape behavior. Um, so one of my initial questions basically is, do you believe that LGMD neurons are essentially just angular size detectors or more general purpose analyzers? And do you think that behavior modulates their function as in flight, or you know, is this basically what, the, what they amount to? Do, are they feature detectors in well, this specific they're, they're very, yeah, they're very, <clears throat> in a sense, they're feature detectors because there's those variables, like, for example, angular threshold size that they're able to code for. But I don't think it's the only thing that they code for, because the, it looks like, at least our work suggests, that the dynamics of the firing rate over time is really important to, or seems to be important for the triggering of, of at least jump escape behaviors. So in a sense, they are very fascinating uh, to me, because they have such a, a, um, an exquisite sensitivity for those looming stimuli. And they respond to those looming stimuli, for example, very well, independent of the direction of approach of the object, for example, or independent of its texture. But then their responses are very uh, small to objects that, for example, miss the animal. So it's a it's a neuron that is very highly tuned. So if you were to make an analogy with uh, the, the primate visual system, you'd think of those more as 
as neurons further down the, the mm. visual stream than early processing so, neurons. So another question I had was you had said that the excitatory input is actually retinotopic. The inhibitory input isn't, but the, the excitatory input is retinotopic. Is that important to the, the motor output that you're studying? Is motor output directional? I mean, is there any issue? Is where objects are in the receptive field important to the system? To, to some extent, so the excitatory input is retinotopic onto the main dendrite of the of the neuron, but certainly the output behaviors uh, d don't really rely on that to some extent. I mean, uh, so if you do an escape behavior, for example, you want to jump, you want to jump away from, from the, the approaching object, but it's not really known whether that, that LGMD neuron is actually what is causing, for example, directionally of an escape behavior. So it could be that the, the retinotopy is just uh, a function of the anatomy of the cell and of the eye, but that then there are mechanisms within the, the dendritic tree itself that render the firing rate output independent, for example, of the angle of approach of an object. That's something we're interested in investigating and seeing how you get that from, from a, a dendritic tree. But um, this, the behavior of this neuron is different, I mean, from these H1 neurons in flies, right? I oh, mean, it's very this kind of like Reinhardt detector, and then you have this kind of multiplicative um, behavior, and then you have, we were talking about this during dinner yesterday, like, like in MT, you have this kind of energy-based um, motion detection algorithms or models about how these neural tissues work, right? So do you think you can find, is there is this exclusive to the locust? And how is that, uh, do you think you can find it in other insects? So people actually, <clears throat> actually people have found neurons that respond exactly the same way as the LGMD in the visual system of the pigeon. Oh. So there's, um, uh, in the pigeon there is a nucleus which is called the nucleus rotundus, where there's a series of neurons that respond also very well to, to objects that are approaching in a collision course. And um, uh, a scientist in Canada, uh, Barry Frost, has actually uh, characterized very well the, the nucleus rotundus of the pigeon. And the first class of, of neurons that he described were actually sensitive to time to contact. And uh, he, I believe in 1998, he described one class of neurons that has exactly the same fine rate shape as the, as the uh, uh, LGMD neuron in, in, in the locus. And subsequently now, a group in China has actually found that neurons with this kind of response properties are found in other places in the pigeon visual system. So it seems like, which was a, quite a surprise to us, that those kinds of, of responses can be found really in very uh, different species, uh, from vertebrate to invertebrates. Now, that's the only two systems where we really have uh, recordings done um, and that characterize neurons with those properties. But we know from the behavioral point of view that there are many other animals that have similar response, uh, uh, escape behaviors properties than, uh, than the, that is found in the locus. So it could be that, uh, that you find similar neurons there. For example, in, in fish, there is a mountainer cell. And if, if uh, you look at the, at the subthreshold membrane potential of the mountainer cell, uh, when you present uh, objects that are approaching at different speeds or with different size, it's very similar. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar to what you find in, in the locus. Yeah, I was thinking of an octopus, as a matter of fact, right now. Uh, okay. One theme that has sort of <coughs> runs through sensory neuroscience has been a, a dichotomy between 
making a sensory system that is a sort of general purpose analyzer that would work in any space in any world uh, versus one that is very precisely tuned for the animal's uh, behavioral niche. And so uh, uh, I'm sure you read, uh, everybody has read what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain and, and a lot of the, uh, these famous papers that seem to imply that the visual system is not designed to work in any situation, but it's very specifically tuned to particular real-life situations that have happened in that animal's uh, history. And on the other hand, um, there's a theme, especially among computational neuroscientists, to try to think about the design of an optimal nervous system that would work under any circumstances and would be great for looking at anything. Uh, of sensory system. So it seemed to me that the sensory system of the locust, as you laid it out for us, is a kind of those two things in sequence. The first part of the sensory system, of the visual system, is a kind of general purpose analyzer. It divides the world up into, into little tiny pieces, tries to represent those pieces in a temporally uh, high-fidelity way and, and in a spatially uh, reasonable uh, reasonable spatial resolution. And then that neural image of the visual system is sampled by these feature detectors who seem to know a lot about the world that the locust lives in. It's designed to specifically find certain things. Is that fair to say that that way? Yeah, I think there's some truth to it. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking also a lot about those optimality uh, questions because from a, a physicist background, this is kind of a, of a natural things thing to 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 consider, and it's it's you're always torn between this idea that yeah there should be some optimality, and and then when you look at your data, it doesn't always look like it's that optimal uh, always. But I've kind of come also to to think that maybe <clears throat> those ideas of optimality works much better work much better in the early uh, uh, sensory stages of, of a sensory system, or at least we are able to find out what is the, what is the optimal, the variable that is optimized for early in, the, in, in sensory stages. And then as you progress and, and the data becomes more complicated, you, you find more, and maybe because, because uh, as you say, each animal has its own specific needs, you find some kind of ad hoc solution that are kind of built from, from those initially optimal inputs. So that seems like it could be uh, a way that things are done. On the other hand, you can always argue, well, we, we don't really know what it's up, what the later stages are optimized for, and so this is always kind of an open question. So do you, well, let, me, let me ask the question another way. Do you think the looming detector cell that you've studied, whose name I... LGMD. LGMD. <laughs> that, uh, that neuron, which is a kind of higher-order sensory neuron of some kind, uh, and seems like a feature detector is one of five kinds of neurons that detect different features, or 50 or 500 or 5,000 kinds of neurons that, you know, is, are there, are there 5,000 different features that the, that, that the locus is, is, has got a cell that detects it just as specifically as this one detects looming stimuli, or are there fewer? Are they all collected in the one place where you could count them? I, I think, uh, I think there has to be some of those neurons that are much more general purpose that are used in, in, in different uh, types of behaviors and for different types, types of, uh, of, uh, of uh, circumstances because 
some for every biological system, every animal needs some kind of degree of adaptability. But certainly, uh, escape behaviors are those kinds of things that you probably want to hardwire and makes uh, things definitely uh, um, important to be done very reliably from one time to the other. So I think there's certainly a series of other neurons that are probably also feature detectors for different aspects of the visual world. But I, I believe that other things cannot be really uh, hardwired, otherwise the animals wouldn't survive that well in, in, in the world. The nice thing about this feature detector is that it connects in a understandable way to the motor system. One of the nice things about the, the, the localist notion, the Barlow idea that's sometimes disparaged as a grandmother cell idea, was that once you've got a cell that detected your grandmother, if there's a behavior you're supposed to perform, uh, what would that be, I guess? Hugging your grandmother or something. Could asking be, for money. Could, asking for money could be immediately triggered by that neuron in a in a more or less straightforward way. The, the distributed coding schemes, which have some wonderful properties, are, are hard to connect up to particular behaviors in a straightforward way and require... It's not impossible, of course, but it requires some elaborate distributed motor system notions uh, in order to make them, them work in an easy way. So sometimes it's said about the Maldner cell, well, this is something special. There's only one Maldner cell. You can see that when you look at a fish brain, and you don't find 10 other cells that look a lot like it and seem to be in its position that represent other behaviors. And so maybe this is a kind of one-of-a-kind thing. Um, so can you, can you see them? I mean, can you see other cells like this who are in this same situation, that have dendritic trees that, that tell you kind of what they do, the way this one's dendritic tree tells you what it's doing? Uh, well, in the, in the locus visual system, uh, there's other neurons are not as well studied. Than, uh, but for example, in the fly, there's a, there's a series of, of all those um, famous tangential cells that have been uh, studied by... A lot of people starting in the 50s uh, at, uh, in, in Germany. And there, definitively, you have a series of, of, uh, of dendritic trees that are, that are quite uh, revealing about what the cells are doing. For example, all those VS cells have, have dendrites that are, that are very planar and that, that are focusing on, on a small vertical, coding for a small vertical stripe of the visual world. Those, those neurons have similar properties. And I mean, in the sense that their dendrites also tell us a lot about what, what they're doing, but they're doing, of course, entirely different things because they're coding for optic flow rather than an object approaching on a collision course. So yes, I think there are other cells. And it's presu presumably in the locus you'll find those same neurons if you go and, and look for them. So there must be cells that are doing these kinds of things. I, I think those might be really related to fundamental behaviors, like for example, flying, where you'd want to have some hardware like an autopilot that, that kind of helps you to, 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 to get where you want to go and with something that you use all the time and other things that can't be just as uh, hardwired. But for certain things, it just does make sense, I think, for any nervous system. But in terms of this hardwired idea, I mean, if you go to the uh, Plesia example, I mean, sure, you have a few uh, uh, cells. I was thinking about molecules, but... Uh, 
you have a few cells, and then they're involved in every single aspect of chewing, digesting, and excretion of, and in both directions uh, of, of uh, in the behavior of the animal. It depends on the state of the animal. And I'm wondering if the behavior of these neurons change when you have an isolated green-looking locust as opposed to when you have a swarming locust. I mean, the behavior of locusts changes. I mean, they, they, they behave differently. I mean, What's the color have to do with it? Well, it's a, they change. I mean, when they, they start like swarming, they they, they get spotted. You can see them here, oh. like during the summer. You can see them. The, the the late ones are all green and kind of pretty and alone. Uh -huh. And then the ones that are swarming around the light uh, poles are all spotty and brown, and that happens across the, the planet. And I think they get more active. The swarming ones are more active. Uh -huh. I mean, well, they they fly more, uh -huh. right? Um, and in general, I mean, and, and, and they move from West Africa to East Africa together, so somehow they know that. So I wouldn't be surprised if even this cell that seems to be like a switch uh, would uh, do something else, right? And something dramatically different. Well, it just, I mean, they're, they're, in terms of like a mating behavior and things like that, mm -hmm. I mean, you'd imagine that. You wouldn't necessarily want to trigger an escape response to an oncoming suitor, but I mean, it just seems oh, like no? they're, they're all depends. Depends on color is, how many spots he has. But um, yeah, so that I mean, that was that was another question. Is there any? I mean, no one talks about you know top-down modulation like attention, I guess, in insects and and that sort of thing. But there's there's got to be. That's why the retinotopy to me seemed an indication that there's a lot more going on. And I mean, you said you're going to be looking at this in flight, and that may. Have, yeah, how, how much do we know about the neuromodulation in, uh, in insects? Well, so the, probably the best described is, is octopamine. Uh -huh. um, by, uh, Hans, Hans Joachim Fluger has done a lot of work in, in Germany and, and other people too, uh, looking at how, how it can actually modulate things. Another thing that, for example, the LGMD neuron, which uh, um, has not really been published, but uh, uh, some of the work of Michael Oshie that shows that uh, nitric oxide mm. is actually uh, dramatically modulating the responses of the cell. Mm. So there's certainly a, a series of, uh, of, of, of processes that could actually influence a lot of what the neuron is doing, depending on the situations. Now, concerning um, solitarius and gregarious animals, so as, as you said, there, there is... Um, there's a phase of, of the locus that is uh, where they're kind of solitary and the other phase which is gregarious. So there a group uh, in, in Oxford has actually, to my knowledge, probably the only colony where they have the solitarious animals in, uh, raised uh, in solitary stage and gregarious animals that are raised, raised in, in gregarious state. And they made then a direct comparison of the responses of the DCMD mm -hmm. and LGMD neuron to looming stimuli uh, and then, they, indeed, they find some differences. Oh, okay. uh, they, they, they are not dramatic differences, but there are, there are mm. subtle differences in the shape of the receptive field and the responses to approaching objects that are different. And actually, they argue that some of those might be due to the fact that that if you are in, in a dense swarm, you're facing a completely different situation than a locus that is living by itself, by its own. Yeah, probably your threshold is decreased, yeah, right, yeah, or something exactly. like that, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of 20 degrees, it has to be 10 yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, one would assume there must be modulation if there's a synapse. 
because if it was purely <laughs> a stereotype behavior that needs to be acted upon as quickly as possible, then why have a synapse at all? Just have the retina, the religion, the LGMD, straight straight to the motor output. But that's so, what I was going to ask you. What what is uh, why do we characterize the LGMD purely as a sensory neuron? Because I mean, it has it's. Its firing rate does actually tell you something about motor behavior. I, I think it's at the interface between the two. It's, so that's a, a thing that makes it fascinating in a sense is because there's not a few systems where you, you kind of know where sensory ends and where motor uh, starts. And there there's kind of this natural uh, dichotomy between the brain and, and, the, and the motor centers downstream. So we think of, we, we like to think of it as kind of being at the interface between the two. Um, the, the reason why the synapse is so secure and why them, them, you wouldn't have just an axon that goes down, I, I'm not really sure. It's, it's impossible to... We never see uh, spikes in the, in the DCMD when, when we're recording from the LGMD that, that are not accompanied by a spike in the, in the LGMD, but there might be some situation where that happens. Um, well, I mean, and it's a trigger for probably... Um uh, CPGs, right? Uh, or, or because the movement of what you described of triggering the escape response is complex. It's not just fire action potentials and the animal will jump, right? You need to cock the, uh, the, the joint and then go in the opposite direction, right? So you have some kind of complex, a little bit more of, of, uh, of a network of neurons to be activated by your Absolutely. L, um, LGMD neuron. So that's actually uh, that's amazing because, um, and something that one wouldn't automatically suspect is that the animal's motor system has a like a big capacitor built into it that allows it to pump energy into the stress on this connective tissue and then to and then to release that energy all at once to make a jump. This is what we're, we've been talking about that's kind of unique. I don't know, maybe lots of... There's, not, that, you know, there's a few examples of systems that have this kind of, of, uh, of mechanisms, but yeah, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. I think there's some lizards that have some kind of a, also a ballistic uh, tongue uh, uh, mechanisms that allows them to catch insects very fast. So, is the energy stored in torsion? Because both extensors and flexors are are active at the time that the energy is being stored. So, it can't be stored in the form of flexion or extension. It must be some kind of torsional thing. Or yeah. So, part of it is uh, so there's a kind of a locking mechanism. So, the the that has been described kind of in detail. I, I I'm not completely. Uh, uh, I don't know exactly all the details of the literature, but there's a, a lock mechanism that kind of set, is set in place, and then the extents on the flexor actually co-contract, and some of that energy is then transferred into deformation of the exoskeleton, and and part of it is of course stored in the in the in the muscles themselves, but a, a good fraction of it is stored in those deformation of the exoskeleton, and then. That is kind of like a spring that gets loaded and then suddenly released when that lock mechanism is is unlocked, and that happens when the flexors and the extensors actually stop firing. That's amazing because um, when when you think of a of a ballistic movement that has no sensory feedback, 
Uh, once it's enacted, then that's it. That's that's where you're going. But if you're thinking about this in terms of the behavior of the animal, where it's trying to avoid a looming stimulus, how how does directionality play into this? Because um, you just you know you cock up the flexors and mess and and um, extensors and get a spring and you unload the spring. Um, how 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 does I don't understand where if if a something's coming directly at you or coming from the side, you're going to have to jump in different directions. Yeah, so that, that's a very interesting thing. And, and the, the, actually, the, 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 the answer was kind of un, unexpected to us. Uh, the, the group of Clarind in, in uh, England just published a paper a few months ago where they actually studied uh, uh, jumping locusts, and they showed that actually the directionality of the jump is not really caused by the, the, the hind legs, but by the positioning of the front legs. So if you position, you can have one front leg that is extended and the other one that is actually uh, tilted, and, and that will then decide in which direction you're going to be jumping. So it seems like the, the, uh, the, the back leg are actually just used as a kind of a power uh, uh, generator, but then the fine-tuning is done by uh, how you position your front, front legs one with respect to the other one. So probably there, is, uh, there are other neurons beside, there are certainly other neurons beside the, the LGMD and DCMD that are important in that behavior. And certainly the ones that are used for generating the directionality must be different ones. And uh, those are not really characterized at this point. So, so we don't really know how those signals are do, I thought like locusts, when you try to scare a locust, uh, they just jump, right? They can I mean, it's almost—it's almost like a random jump. No, no, right? they, 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 they decide. No, no, there is a there is oh, a component. Okay. So if you if you present stimuli that are mm. coming from different uh, directions, it's not as you say. There is a random component, so they they won't always jump in the same direction. Mm. But if the stimulus is coming from the left, on average, they'll jump more to the right. So there's a probability, higher probability. But yes. I mean, sometimes it just yes, I mean, they're so just like deer on the road. They go right, right into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A call, a call also a nice question a little while ago about why you shouldn't connect a sensor to an actuator directly. Okay, and so I think the question, I think in some sense, is related to the fact that you would have you have no way of controlling false alarms, right? Is that is that what you would think that if you were because so for example, if you were to do a series of tests with a looming stimulus, but you just freeze it before mm -hmm. expanding it any further, is there does it jump? Question is, do you get a greater response or do you get a jump, no jump at the sharp threshold of, say, 25 degrees? Ah. Right, and that's a really important question. That's the question I wanted to ask in your, in your seminar. How, how does this apparatus that, that samples a huge part of the visual world deal with conflicting signals? So if you get the signal of a looming object to here, but then it disappears halfway across the, the, the eye, then what, how is it just simply integrate and fire? <laughs> And if a, a if the looming object traverses a critical distance of the eye, the animal will go, even if it disappears at the <clears> last moment. What I believe at the moment, but you know, we haven't done the experiment, so so. But what our data would tend to suggest is that you really need um, the firing rate of that neuron to actually decrease before you you really get a behavior, because that's when we believe that uh, the, the decay of that firing rate will actually turn off excitation to those flexors and extensors. So I think if you stop, my prediction would be that if you stop a stimulus too soon, nothing is going to happen. 
and you'll, you'll need to, to reach a threshold and that that threshold should, should correspond to the fact that the firing rate of the neuron is actually starting to decay um, so that you get the jump. So if you, if you don't get a decay in the firing rate, you won't get the jump. So, that, so that's if the animal doesn't jump, the stored energy in the cuticle <coughs> dissipate s- somehow. They should be, yeah, so they, there are cases where they will, you'll see them load but not uh, unload. So they must have some kind of mechanism. I would suspect that they have some mechanism that allows them to smoothly unload if they don't want. They can control that quite well, though, because they, they can load and and actually wait before they unload. For example, uh, if you look at uh, locusts, if you bother them and, and uh, have them kick at you, they will actually be, they'll be load and they'll wait much longer in that loaded state than when they jump away. So, so there's a way of tuning that, that timing of loading from about 200 milliseconds at the fastest to about a second, a second and a half at the slowest when they do kicking, kick movements. So this brings up a, a bunch of interesting motor system side questions. One of them is the higher order sensory cell is actually firing in, in a sort of motor coordinates because it's raising its activity the way the muscles ought to contract and when it shuts down that's the trigger to jump so I think I, I think it was maybe Sama said earlier that it's uh, it, it's a little bit hard to say what's motor and what's sensory there that sensory uh, higher order sensory cell is firing in a way that I would call in a motor coordinate system and it's speaking the motor system's language not only that, but it knows an enormous lot about the motor system and how it works. Uh, it knows that when, I mean, it doesn't, of course, it doesn't know this stuff, but it's, it's designed to take advantage of minuscule features of the motor system that are unique to that particular set of muscles and that particular uh, uh, motor plant. That, and isn't that remarkable that for a sensory neuron to speak the motor language like that. Yeah, so I think it's, it's that, that cell knows about the motor system or the motor system knows about that cell. It's, it's <laughs> yes, the, the grandmother, granddaughter <laughs> cell. Which one, which one it is. But for example, it's true that the, that mm. the neuron that is postsynaptic to the LGMD that deceived the neuron synapses on, on flexors and extensor motor neuron. And that's highly unusual because on the other legs that doesn't happen. It's only on those legs that, that it, it is known that a sensory uh, or a neuron that comes from from the brain of the animal projects on both motor neurons. So th- certainly there is some specificity to the wiring that that, uh, that is probably related to the behaviors, to, to the way that the jumps are generated. Uh, I'm wondering, I'm just moving the conversation in a different direction. Like, um, how does it work with with frogs? I mean, because frogs also respond to looming. And speed, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's more like time of contact, because if you move very slowly, they won't, they won't, they won't see you. And uh, I think the, the 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 release mechanism bears some resemblance to what you just described with the um, locust, and it's also ballistic, right? When they when they let go, they don't, they can, they just like jump, right, and to whatever they were released. 
Do you, do you know, Rama, if, if you, how does it work, the visual system in the front? No. no. In terms of looming stimuli? I can get frogs if you're fat. I'm trying to figure out, how do you do experiments with these guys when... I mean, how do these poor students deal with handling them on a daily basis when they constantly take off? Yeah, how do you actually sneak up on one when they can see 360? Sort of oh, you go and catch them in a cage, so the cage is kind of a restricted uh, environment. Uh, if you have to go and catch them in the wild, then you just have one chance. If you miss <laughs> no, but handling them in an experimental setup. Uh, so, yeah, so the way we, so of course, I mean, if we were, so that's a, a thing that took us a while to figure out. In fact, the, the way that we handle them so that they don't, you're right. So if we were to put them on a, on a, on a holder or somewhere, they jump away even before we have been able to trigger our stimulus. So the way that we actually do that is we have a, a very narrow platform and we have a tunnel. And we actually put them in front of the tunnel. And so they're kind of forced to enter the tunnel and then they walk in the tunnel because they hate being in the dark. And it's just when they get out of the tunnel that we actually trigger our stimulus. So, so we have the platform stops abruptly. So they're coming out of the tunnel. They have to stop because there's just no, no flow anymore. And that's when those that stay there for for a while, that's those that we use then to do to, to trigger behavior. But it, in fact, it took us a long time to actually find out the right way to, to do that. Locus psychology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's always the same thing. I mean, if you try to understand your prep, it's gonna work better. But to come back to the to the to the frogs, uh, the, they will also jump away when you when a stimulus reaches a certain angular threshold oh, size. Okay. So people have, have shown that in frog too. But it seems to be, I mean, very different the way that it works, at least um, so from from what I know. So the, the people that have recorded from the from the retina uh, show that there are these um, off-sustained uh, uh, off uh, cells, ganglion cells, that will fire when, a, when an object is approaching. And apparently... What has been described is that the spikes from several of those cells get synchronized and continue to fire uh, as the object has crossed the receptive field. So you have the, the object that is increasing size, it's recruiting more and more of those uh, off-ganging cells, and they fire synchronous to each other uh, as the stimulus continues to approach. And you can disrupt that synchrony by injecting blockers of uh, inhibitory blockers in the retina and uh, cause the behavior to decrease. So there seems to be a code there that, that is synchronous, so a synchronous code that is necessary to get uh, the behavior across cells in, in the whole uh, visual field. But that's about all what we know as far as I know. So nobody has recorded, although I think some groups in Japan are now trying to record from, uh, from the optic tectum, but that hasn't been done yet uh, as far as I know. So there, there's, there's it's very fascinating. It seems to be a completely different way that the information is is um, is coded. At least from what we can say, we don't think that cells in the locust will fire for a sustained period of times after, except for the LGMD, but not at the level of of local retinotopic cells uh, fire for a sustained period of time uh, after the stimulus has crossed the receptive field. Although they, they will be synchronized by the stimulus in our case, but there it seems like the synchronization occurs afterwards and lasts afterwards. Okay, well, thanks for being with us today. And uh, thank you, everyone, also for coming. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>